Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the New Testament book of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 5 at verse 22 and extending to verse 9 in the 6th chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bondservants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ." doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of of the Lord. Back around 2004, I suppose it was, Mitt Romney was running for president. He was asked in a a fairly public interview, uh, what do you believe about marriage? At the time, it was a major political football kind of thing, and still is. And Romney stepped to the plate and He said, well, I come from the Mormon church, and I I believe that a marriage is between one man and one woman and one woman and one woman. Romney wasn't really known for his jokes, but that one was actually pretty cool. Mormons do believe in polygamy. That's a part of their history. That's a part of their development. Uh, Throughout history, what the family is, what its purpose should be, 
not all types and conditions of men in all places have uh, been in agreement on that issue. Um, in the East, if you look at the religions of the East, there is a major theme that runs through them, and that is that marriage is bad. You are really to avoid marriage and family at all costs. The Mahavira, who was the founder of the religion called Jainism, was married, but he left his wife. And when he began his uh, spiritual walk and teaching, he assured his followers that women have no souls. They are not actually human, and there is no way they can attain spiritual enlightenment And in fact, and I quote the Mahavira, women are evil, the greatest temptation in the world. So if you're thinking about apostatizing and going to an Eastern religion, if you're a gal, I would suggest avoiding Jainism because they won't let you in. Except that there is today a wild and liberal uh, break-off part of them that actually does believe you're human. Now, now they're, they're liberal, Um, but they'll let you in. But they will not let you marry. The Jains are totally against marriage. It siphons away your ability to reach spiritual enlightenment. In Hinduism, in the Vedas, there is, among the four major sections of the Vedas, uh, a bunch of teaching about when you're a, a hermit and you're begging for your living. In all four of the Vedas, they have this section. And the reason why they have it is because in Hinduism, it is assumed that you will marry and you will have children, but by the time your children have children, if you are a man, you will leave your family and you will go to be a beggar and live in the wilderness while you seek spiritual enlightenment. Now, not all Hindus do that, but that is the teaching of the Vedas. And it says, much like the Jains, if you want to find spiritual enlightenment, first thing you've got to do is you really got to ditch your woman. Because honestly, she is going to keep you from spiritual enlightenment. And you're to go and beg, and you're to go and find spiritual enlightenment through the suffering of being a beggar. Siddhartha, the founder of Buddhism... The very first thing he did when he looked for spiritual enlightenment was he left his wife. Now, they had had a child, and he was just young at this point, about two years old, but Siddhartha had named him Fetters. At least that's how the the Sanskrit translates. He had named his son uh, Handcuffs, Binders. And so... You can see where Siddhartha is thinking, wife and child bind you to the earth, they keep you from spiritual enlightenment, so you've got to leave family to find your spiritual self. In actuality, that is a major theme running through Eastern religions. The founder of the Sikhs left his wife. The founder of Confucianism, Confucius, got divorced, and then became a religious teacher. And uh, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, 
was such an absolute libertarian, he never got married in the first place and didn't like people. So if you're going to, if you're going to start an Eastern religion, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to get rid of your family. That is the assumption in the East. In the Greek and Roman world, uh, around about the time that many of these Eastern religions were forming, the philosophers were thinking about what a family should be like, and a number of them wrote uh, family codes. It became a, a set pattern by the philosophers to explain what a family ought to look like, and a couple months ago, I kind of took you through that when we were in Colossians. The philosophers sat down to think about what a family should be, and they, they wrote these codes, and just like the passage that we read, they start with husband, and they go to wife, and then they go to child, and then they go to slave. They don't really talk about masters, though, and they don't talk that much about women or children. Rather, the majority of their ink is spilled about how you should be a good husband, but it's not as benevolent as you might think. From the point of view of these, these philosophers, Stoic philosophers and other uh, philosophies, the husband is the head of the house, which the Christian church certainly agrees with, but his household exists to be his kingdom. He has received wife, and he is having children so as to build up his kingdom. The English have a proverb that a man's home is his castle, and that's the British way of explaining the attitude of the philosophers. Men were to be of such a nature that they could utilize the family for economic benefit and for their advancement. When they started teaching about wife and they started teaching about children, really that was the, the light in which the teaching was, how can your wife most benefit you economically and in standing? How can your children benefit you most in economics and in standing? It was really very much very Darwinistic. Underneath it was the thought that families are in competition and you want to rise above the rest, so how will you put your wife in such a position to help you do that? How will you mold your children to do that? All men are in competition. Uh, they saw the family as the bedrock of the nation, but they did see that also in pretty Darwinistic terms. We are Greek, or we are Roman, and the reason why I'm teaching you how to be a good husband and head of your house is because we're going to dominate. Our families are going to be better than families outside of the Greek and Roman world. And by our discipline and our drive, and by shaping our families in the right way, we will rule. And of course, the Romans are the ultimate example of that. Uh, it's very much very practical, but not very spiritual. In our catechism, in the Heidelberg Catechism, the concept of family comes up in a very strange place for modern ears. In Lord's Day 39, we read this. 
What does God require in the fifth commandment? The answer is that I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother. And that's very straightforward. The eighth commandment is honor your father and mother. And uh, we heard it referenced in our scripture reading today. What does God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother. And then it goes on and to all in authority over me. All. That, that suggests the judge, the police officer, the government. Uh, and to all in authority over me, submit myself with due obedience to all their good instruction and correction, and also to bear patiently with their infirmities, which they will have, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. Moderns read that question and they go, how do you get that? Well, the answer is, the writer of our catechism went to Scripture and saw where the nation came from, and the nation-state comes from family. In the beginning, God creates a family. He creates Adam, he creates Eve. The first family is born and they have children. But as time goes by, the family advances into the clan. It's a larger grouping, but it's a, a solid grouping. It's a family grouping. The clan develops into the tribe, which again is larger. And then ultimately, the tribe develops into the nation. And so the writers of the catechism saw that nations are really just kind of advanced families. The police officer, the judge, the government official, he is supposed to be fatherly to the people under him, uh, and the people under him are to be like uh, dutiful children because a nation is born from family. Now, that's not how most nations think of themselves today, but that is where they came from. And so in our catechism we said family is really the pattern for all social life, because all social life really evolves from families. In the current society today, when the concept of family is considered, really no one can define for you what a family is. Uh, there's warm, uh, fuzzy feelings connected with it, but what a marriage is, what a family is, really, nobody can really tell you. Years ago, when Carmen was doing her internship, she was uh, a student teacher in the classroom of a, uh, a friend of ours who was part of an evangelical church, a Bible-believing church. And while she was doing her student teaching, there was a lesson on family, and this uh, you know, very straightforward Christian, very, you know, wore it on her shoulder, believed very much. Uh, she taught a, a lesson where she taught the children, now, family is pretty much anything you live in. If you have a mother and a father and they're married, well, that's a family. If you have uh, a father and a mother and they're not married, that's a family. Uh, if you have two women living together and they're acting as your mom, well, that's a family. Uh, if you have a single parent, that's a family. Or maybe you're being raised by an uncle. That's a family. The emphasis was a family can really kind of be any shape and form 
that it spills out to. And our friend, the very dedicated Christian, uh, defended her lesson when Carmen said, you know, I'm not really comfortable with this. Our understanding of what a family is for and its purpose, uh, we don't have one. The one thing that our culture does agree upon, though, and, and everybody will ultimately say this, is, well, you know, a family, a marriage, that's for having children. So when I'm thinking about having children, then I'll get married, because Children are a handful. Children are, are very difficult to raise. Uh, and, and children need stability. So when I have a child, I'll have somebody else to bear the burden of it. And because that's our understanding of it, you're seeing marriage take place later and later because people are wanting to have children later and later. And that's all that marriage really is for. That's all they can really define. The funny thing is, that's a, that's a twisting of our Christian heritage. It's, it's the last residue of our actual confession. If you are a Presbyterian, or if you are a uh, confessional Baptist, or if you happen to be one of we 10,000 confessional Congregationalists, um, all of our confessions say this. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Marriage was ordained for three reasons. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed and for present, preventing uncleanness. So the Christians of the Reformation, one and all, said that marriage is given from God, it's to be between one man and one woman, and there are three principal reasons for God giving the, the estate of marriage. Uh, one is husband and wife will help each other. Well, the worldlings are kind of sort of thinking that way because they say, you know, we're going to have kids, I'm going to need help. Uh, it's for uh, having mankind have a legitimate issue. And there, our forefathers say, you know, marriage is for children, without doubt. And then uh, the church also is to have a holy seed. It's supposed to have disciples. And lastly, it's for preventing uncleanness. And quite frankly, the world has no idea what uncleanness is. So they don't really understand where their their dying thoughts have come from, but they are a a twisted and dying residue of the Christian worldview. But that's about all they can say that marriage is. Now, in our text today, we have another family code written by the Apostle Paul. The Spirit has guided him and given him to, to use the form of the, the, the Western philosophers and to talk about family. And the chapter break is very, very unfortunate. If you will notice, the passage I read goes from chapter 5 to chapter 6. 
the reason why the, the chapter break was put there by people much later after the, the, the letter was written is because the passage about husband and wife is really so striking. It's long and it's, it's very deep. And the, the, the chapter breakers thought, well, Paul is done with this very important thought and now he's moving on to talking about children and slaves. But that's really not how it's set up. An ancient would realize when Paul spends that much time talking about husbands and wives and then goes on to talk about children and slaves and masters, uh, it's all one thought. Paul is showing what the Christian family ought to be like, and he is describing the family in Christian terms. And these terms, as I have said before, and I must emphasize, what Paul puts before us is not accepted in all times and places. Most human societies at any point in time, in any point on the globe, would read this passage and say, this isn't what we think a family should be. Paul is speaking very, very counterculturally. The Holy Spirit of God is describing what a family ought to look like, and it does not match the typical African family or the typical Chinese family. It doesn't match the family that is just right next door at this moment. All the world, when it comes to families, they have shaped and molded the family for their own purposes, and it gets very mutated indeed. When I was a child, uh, there was some residue of Christendom still left in culture, and Because of that, where I was living, among most people, there was kind of an assumption that the forms that Paul will describe were normative. Now, that doesn't mean that people were following the Bible and having Christian marriages. Far from it. There was uh, just as much mutation in practice at that time as there is now, but there was a general understanding in my area that, you know, this is the norm. We're not living the norm, but we understand what it is. It's supposed to be husband and wife and child, one husband, one wife, children. That was what normies did, and if you were a normal person, you did that. But a lot of people weren't normal, but they kind of knew it. Today the understanding of Paul's forms is totally absent. The the average person does not think in these forms, and if they don't think in the forms, they absolutely don't think in terms of the purpose. All of that is absolutely missing from our culture so that if you live what Paul is saying what the Holy Spirit is saying through him, by default, you are living counterculturally. By default, the world will see you as the weirdo. The world will see you as the rebel. The world will wonder what the heck is wrong with you. You know, I'm not really against that. Because actually, the Christian faith calls us to be a peculiar people, to stand out, to walk in God's good deeds, 
And for the world to see that and to see the, the contrast, so I'm okay with that. But it does mean the world will see you walking against them. All you have to do is have a marriage like what's here. You don't have to be a radical. You just kind of have to live this out, and the world will see you as a radical. As we look at this code, what can we discern from it? Well, I've already given one sermon on the first part of it. I've looked at husbands and wives, and uh, there's, there's a huge amount of spiritual truth there that I'm not going to go back over. But the first thing we see as we look at this, this code, we see a hierarchy, and it cannot be missed. There is a husband. The husband is the head of the wife. It uses that term. Children are under husband and wife. Slaves are under husband and wife. The husband and wife are, in fact, called master, and they're addressed as such. There is an absolute hierarchy of authority, and it doesn't start with the husband. In the Roman and Greek codes, that's where it started. The family was for the husband, for his purposes, for his advancement. But in the passage we just read, the husband is under Christ. Paul says that very clearly. The the family actually begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a part of the family. Before church began, I was talking with one of you, and they were talking about they were going to move into a new house, and it would just be them and Jesus. And quite frankly, that is the way to think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ is present in every family. He is the head of the husband, but the husband is the head of the wife. Husband and wife are over the children and over the slaves. The world would gnash its teeth at me if it were currently present. They would get angry. They might throw things. Because you are told day in and day out that hierarchy is bad by some of the most hierarchical and power-playing people the world has ever known. We are told by the powers that be that there should be no powers that be. We're told that all people should be radically and totally equal and there should be no authority over anyone, but we should all be absolutely together. And that is why they day in and day out use politics and coercion to try to make us do what they want. The social value is that hierarchy is bad. But the biblical teaching is that hierarchy is good. And we're going to see one of the benefits of it as we go further. But that is the first thing that we we discern. The apostle says the family has an order. And it is, in fact, God-ordained. Secondly, though, there is a purpose to all of this. When God gave the family, and now when God gives the family, every time a family is formed, there is a particular purpose for its existence. Our uh, our forefathers, from other passages, drew that threefold, fourfold reasoning Uh, And and this passage does not discount it, but this passage 
radically describes another reason, and it says it again and again and again and again if you're listening for it. In verse 22 to 24, listen to the phrase Christ, how many times it pops up. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, that's not Christ, but it's referring to him. Jesus is the Lord. Wives, submit in the Lord. Submit for the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So with emphasis, looking for a reference to Jesus Christ, this passage which is towards husbands and and wives, specifically wives, uh, the emphasis is Christ. This is going to be about Christ, it is going to be for Christ, it is going to be like Christ. The, The term Christ just flows through that. Or verse 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So now we've looked at the two most famous parts of the husband and wife section of the code, and if you look at how much ink the apostle has spilled, he has talked much more about Jesus Christ than he has talked about wife or husband. Christ has come up again and again and again and again in the description of wife and husband. But we shall go on. Let us look at what Christ Spirit says to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So in in talking to to children, and in talking to fathers about children, Paul follows the same pattern. He talks more about the Lord. He quotes the Old Testament. He is focused on the Lord far more than he is actually focused on who he's actually talking to. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, Christ, Christ, Christ. He is doing something. He is caring for his church. He is head of the body. Children, you are to be, to be discipled in the Lord. Over and over again, Paul talks more about God than the family member. And then we get to the slaves who are considered family members in the code. And this is what he has to say to slaves. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, doing the will of 
God from the heart with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is much, much, much more about the Lord than about the husband, the wife, the child, or the slave. In the Christian understanding of marriage, marriage is totally and completely about Jesus Christ the Lord. Each of these people are admonished to a certain way of life, to a certain way of living in the family, but it is constantly for the glory of Jesus Christ. The Roman philosophers would scoff at that. When they wrote their codes, they didn't say, now the gods are over the Father, and the Father should glorify the gods. That's just not how it's written. The philosophers begin with the Father. They assume that the family exists to compete with other families, and they are ruthlessly practical and Darwinistic. But when the Spirit of God speaks through an apostle, he constantly directs to Jesus Christ. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Jesus loves his church. Wives, you are to love your husbands and and, and submit to them as the church does to Christ. Children, your entire purpose in living until you are not children is that you are going to be raised up in the admonition of the Lord. You're going to be discipled in what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. You slaves... Now, in, in, in our American culture, you know that there is nothing that our culture considers more evil than slavery. But in Scripture, Paul, by the Spirit, looks at slaves and says, Slaves, in the context of being a slave, glorify Jesus Christ in what you do, Because you are really serving Jesus Christ, not your master. Everything you do, God is watching. And Paul does not say here, now God's highest purpose for you is that you become free. Never says it. Rather, he says, you are a slave. You have been put in this place by providence. Everything you do is really serving the Lord. Now, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say to slaves, you know, if you have an opportunity to get free, go for that. But it's not the major emphasis even there. Even in that passage, the emphasis is entrusting God's providence and serving him where you're at. So the Christian version of the family is that it is a vehicle to glorify Jesus Christ, to serve Jesus Christ, and to live for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The East says marriage will keep you from being spiritual. The West says family is merely practical. And modern culture says, I don't know. But the scripture says the family effectively is an altar to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ day in and day out. 
third, remember how I mentioned that hierarchy actually is good from a Christian point of view? Third, if we take this passage at its face value, women, children, and slaves are specifically protected in the family structure because of its structure. Listen to what is said about women again. Verse 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Think about all those Eastern religious leaders the first thing they do when they want to become spiritual is they ditch their broad. They get rid of the family. They leave their children behind. Here, the Spirit of Christ says, Husbands, love your wives. Love her as much as Christ loves the church. Work for her cleansing. Work for her good. Protect her and love her and cherish her. East and West have no equivalent. Husbands, love your wives to the point where you are willing to die for them. In the ancient world, that kind of protection, love, and concern just wasn't known. It's a radical thought. Husbands, love your wives to the point you're willing to die for them. Or consider what was said to fathers in chapter 6 and verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Siddhartha said, my kid is a, is a set of handcuffs, and I'm leaving. The philosophers said, now you knock those kids around until you get them the way you want them, because they are a resource for you. But in verse 4... We hear fathers admonished not to drive their children to wrath. And that is a word that really needs unpacking. Because in our common parlance, when we use the term wrath, what we're meaning is somebody is not just angry, they are angry. If somebody is wrathful, they're on the warpath. In Scripture, that's not what the term wrath means. In Scripture, several times, God is said to act in wrath. The, the, the judges under God's hand act according to his wrath. But God is not a, a slave to emotion. God does not get so mad that he just strikes out and obliterates you because he couldn't help it. In fact, wrath is used biblically in a judicial sense... When the judge sentences you for a crime, he is acting in wrath. Now, the judge may hate you, but likely not. Likely you are case four on the docket today, and he's going to see four more. And he doesn't really care that much about you regardless. He is dispassionately saying what the law says to happen to you, and quite frankly, you broke the law and this is going to happen. That is wrath. When God acts in wrath, it is the same way, except God cares intimately for all parts of his creation. But it's a judicial term. So now it is applied to children. 
How can you apply the term wrath to children when it is focused at the father? In the Roman world, they would say it cannot be. The child is fully my property. I can do anything I want to with the child. There is no way this child can be, quote, wrathful at me because that would require there to be an authority above me that the child could appeal to and say, my father has treated me wrong. Is there such an authority in the Christian family? In the Roman family, there is not. But in the Christian family, the Lord Jesus Christ is the head. The Father is under the Lord Jesus Christ. Can the Father do all his holy will concerning the family? Not from a Christian point of view. Christ is the head. Christ is to be glorified. Your children are under you, and you are to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But if you drive them to wrath, it means dad is walking against the will of God. Can that happen? From a Christian point of view, it absolutely can. You are not given your authority just to shape and mold your children as you want them. You are given your authority to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Consider how protective that is of the Christian child. In a culture where children which were not wanted would be simply left out in the elements, the Spirit of God says, Fathers, you have a lawful duty to your children. Don't transgress it. Don't drive them to wrath. Raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Nurture means care. Or even consider what Paul says to slaves. The American freaks out. We can't be talking about slaves. We must be talking about employees. And in fact... The original Living Bible, that's how it translated this. But Paul is definitely talking to slaves. They are being seen as part of the family. And the last verse in this code goes back and talks to mother and father and says, And you masters do the same thing to them, that is, that is the slave, give up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So in a, in a Greco-Roman world where slaves were absolutely property and you really could do with them anything you desired, where by your whim you could have them crucified if you desired, the Spirit of God speaks to the head of the household and says, you are master of the slave but you are a slave of the true master. And he is watching, and he is watching how you treat your slaves, and there is no partiality with him. On earth, slave and master may not be equal, but in the eyes of God in heaven, they absolutely are in value. Consider, God, your master, is watching. Treat your slaves in the same manner you want your slaves to treat you. 
consider how protective that is of the slave. God's hierarchy protects the people in it. Christ is over the Father, and he is protecting the home. The wife is protected by her loving and nurturing husband. The children are protected by their discipling and loving parents. The slave is protected by the master who knows he is no better than the slave. The world knows nothing of this kind of relationship. This is not the way the worldlings intermarriage. But this is the biblical pattern. And then lastly, our fourth point is that the Christian marriage preaches Christ. Again, I read to you from the fifth chapter, verse 31 and 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. This was the major point of my sermon two weeks ago. And if you remember that sermon, you're going, he's about to say the same thing. You are absolutely correct. In many ways, this is the deepest point that Paul is pushing forward. And if I repeat it, it is only because it's absolute importance. When a Christian man lives his God-given role under Christ and shapes and molds a Christian family where he loves his wife like Christ loves the church, where the Christian woman in this family responds to her husband as the church ought to respond to Christ, submitting to him, where children are raised up in nurture and admonition, where they are discipled day in and day out, when that happens the gospel in a way is being preached. Your ungodly neighbors don't know anything about that. And if you lived a time of your adulthood without Christ, you didn't know anything about that. But now you do. God has shown you his pattern, and that pattern proclaims the love and care of Jesus Christ. In our Reformed world, there has been some pushback against the motto, preach Christ, if necessary, use words. Now, that pushback is pretty good because when you preach the gospel, you need to use words. But it's not an either-or. Some of us have an old friend who has long been in academia, Um, one of the stories he tells is when he was a student, he had a professor who was a uh, Scientologist, and the Scientologist professor, day in and day out in his class, preached the, the marvels of Scientology. I mean, it was the major focus of the course. Whatever he was teaching was secondary. And our friend said, you know, What he said was very attractive, but I got to watch his life, and the man was pitiful. 
His, his moral character was petty. His life was something I didn't want. That preached the anti-gospel of Scientology. Our friend saw this doesn't work. When a man actually loves a woman, and when a woman actually submits to a man, where children don't rebel, but they are discipled, the world sees the gospel of Christ works. And they're really astonished because that's not what they normally see. They normally see husband and wife bickering and fighting. They see rebellious children. They see disorder in the home. And they go, I understand that because that's me. But when the Christian lives out God's pattern, he is partially and in a way preaching the gospel because he is showing that Christ our husband loves us and he is showing that the power of God can make people different than being like two cats tied by the tail and thrown over a clothesline. It is to the glory of God. Is there